0: Out to the heaviest heart Mr. Stevens forgot his Bible. (laughs) He lived and breathed this book the whole time his wife was in critical care. And he forgot his Bible. well, good morning slash almost afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the well here at STSA. Uh, What we like to say around here is we are an ordinary place where extraordinary things happen, and I'm so happy that you're here joining us on this particular Sunday as we're in the finale of a five-week series we've been talking about called In the Waiting Room. And the question that we've been answering throughout this whole time is what do you do when there's nothing you can do? And I want to start off today by telling you a story. One time when I was literally... In one of those what-do-you-do-when-there's-nothing-you-can-do situations. The year was 2009, and I, along with a group of about probably like six, seven of us, went over to a city in England called Brighton. All right. And for those who have ever been, there was a movie called Brighton Beach or whatever it was. I don't think it's the same one, but there's a city called Brighton in England. And the reason that I was over there, I was with my family as well as six, seven other people. I was asked to go there as kind of like a mission trip, quote-unquote. Because there was a large church there, Coptic church there, which had tons, hundreds, hundreds of young people, uh, college age, like young adult, graduate, that kind of age group. Hundreds of these guys, and they were all away from the church, and they were all kind of doing their own thing, and there was, you know, some issues with the church and things like that. So I was asked by the powers that be to go over there and spend, you know, two and a half weeks over there with a, a group and just kind of do like a, a revival or do like a, whatever I could do for a couple weeks. So I obliged, and I, and I went, and I remember we were going to spend two and a half weeks there in Brighton, and we got there a few days early and spent like three or four days in London, and while we were there in London, like again, we're trying to do like a revival kind of thing, going to visit the churches and do meetings in the churches, and it was really powerful, and we were really excited for what was going to be there when we got to Brighton. Like we were excited to have two weeks, we had nothing to do except spiritual things and, and just kind of invest in the people over there. As we're driving from London to Brighton, I still remember it like it was yesterday, we stopped to get gas at a gas station probably, let's say, about an hour out from our destination. And one of the group that was with us was a girl from London. She was on her phone or she somehow discovered that there was some news that happened in that community that we were going to visit in Brighton. And that is a husband and a wife, okay, mother and a father, husband and a wife, both died that morning. Not just they both died, though. It was a tragic death. It was tragic because what was discovered, what was believed at the beginning and later confirmed, was that one killed the other, then killed himself. All right, The husband had a, uh, had a history of being very abusive, and apparently um, he took his wife's life right there in the apartment and then overcome by the, 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 the reality of what he did. He then took his own life. It actually gets more tragic. Becomes even more tragic is they had three children. The youngest daughter, I think she was 14 at the time, she's the one who actually discovered it when she walked in the apartment and saw them both lying there in a pool of blood right in front of her eyes, 14-year-old girl. And here I come. We find out about this news, and here we are, a group of Americans know nothing about anything. We show up, and as soon as we arrive, they say, we're going straight to church. Everyone is gathering in church, because of this horrible situation that is shaking this community, and, and the kids don't know what to do and the family don't know what to do. And the group over there, the church, it's all a group of, 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 of immigrants from Sudan, okay? They're all Sudanese. So they're very, very tight-knit, and everyone's everyone's uncle and cousin. Like everyone is part of the same family. And this rocked the community, so they said they're all going to meet in church. Now, if I describe to you what I found when I got to church, you won't believe me. Every culture has its own way of mourning, okay, and you understand that, and you respect that, and every culture is different, but I discovered quickly that we as Americans, we have a culture, Sudanese have another culture. (laughs) I got there in that church, and I guess this is the standard practice, okay, like I said, I don't know anything about anything, they've been hearing for a couple months, this great Father Anthony's coming, and all of a sudden, this happens this morning. I get there, and there's this long room in the basement of the church. It's like a hall, okay? And it's long and skinny. And there was a row of chairs along the back wall, side by side by side by side by side by side by side. And then directly in front of them, another row of chairs this way, side by, side by side by side by side. So you have two people standing like sitting like this. And then another row like this all the way down the room from one end to the other, and then again along the wall all the way down. So you have two groups, two lines of people facing each other. We get there, and there's a room probably, I mean, there's probably about 150, and somehow it's all men, okay? There's very, very few women, maybe like one or two, I don't know if that's the thing they do there, but it was all men. And they're just sitting there in those rows in dead silence. Dead, you maybe hear a sniffle or something like that, dead silence, until someone walks in. When someone walks in, what happens? all the way down the row all the way and then back through this way and it, like and every five minutes someone new would walk in, you have to get up and do this thing again you sit back down and silence you get up and you do every five minutes that happens now when i walked in i did the thing okay and i just kind of grabbed a seat over there but because i'm the priest where they want me to sit they said sit next to the children the three children so i'm like how's <laughs> like introduce myself okay and then they're like say a prayer and I'm like I don't know anyone I don't know anything about anything. And they wanted me to like kind of lead this event cuz the other priest hadn't shown up there but here I am. If that's not awkward enough, if that's not awkward enough, you want to get more awkward? The next day is the funeral. What happens at the time of the funeral? They come to me, the priest says to me, gives me the microphone. Says, "Go ahead, you preach." And I said, "Oh no, thank you so much, Father. You preach." He said, "No, no, no." You, and he's one of these old guys, kind of the scary, and I'm just like the young little puppy guy. And I, you know, He says, you preach. And I'm like, I, I, I don't want to preach. I don't know anything. Like, I have to start the preaching by saying, hello, my name is Father Anthony. I'm from America. They don't know who I am. Tragic situation. Like, the kids, like, the fa- like it's a horrible situation. And here I am, say something. It gets even more awkward. You know why? Because as I'm, okay, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. He says, speak in Arabic. I was like, but I don't know Arabic. (laughs) He's like, but they don't know English. (laughs) Only God knows what I said that day. (laughs) I don't know what I said. I don't know how it came across. I don't know what benefit of that episode was. But what I did learn from that, and not just that, but other situations, as, as being a priest now for however many years, is this is life. Like, in my job, this is life. Life is, you are just, for no decision of your own, you are thrust into other people's lives in the worst possible situations. And you are expected to know what to say or what to do, even though, let's be honest, there's nothing that I can say and nothing that I can do. I'm asked at times to be able to answer questions that, if I'm real honest, like if I open up inside my heart, that I have those same questions inside me. But you know what I discovered? It's not just me as a priest. This is life, isn't it? Like maybe I have more occasions, but this is life. This is life as a friend. If you call yourself a friend, there's going to come a point in time where you are thrust in that same situation as well. If you call yourself a brother, a a, a daughter, a, 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 a sister, a cousin, like this is how life is, that we are thrust into these situations, well, we don't have anything that we can say, but we're expected to say something. Through experiences like that, I've learned a few lessons about what I'm calling, it's a biblical term that I'm kind of using in a little bit different way, the fellowship of suffering. And I want to share with you some observations about the fellowship of suffering. These shouldn't be new to you if you've ever been through any kind of suffering situation. The first observation, very simple, is that there exists a natural bond between those who have suffered deeply and similarly. There is a natural bond between people who have suffered similarly and deeply. What I mean by that is, I'm a priest. I'm the expert guy from Washington, D.C., United States of America. I'm of very little value in that situation that I described. You know who was much more valuable? The people. There were certain people that walked into that room, and you could see it. They walked into that room, and they had been through similar situations, even though you can't imagine something similar to that, but deep pain, and deep sorrow, and they've experienced it, and those people walked into that room with authority and with power, and there was an instant bond. I know all the verses. They've lived all the verses. I know all the sermons, but they've lived that stuff, and they've experienced it, and those people, there's a natural bond that exists between people who have suffered deeply and similarly in life. It goes beyond preaching. Second observation. Those who have suffered are uniquely qualified to comfort those in suffering. You agree with that statement? We've all been in a situation where we've been suffering and someone comes and says a whole bunch of words and we hate them, want them to go away because they don't know what we're going through. And then someone comes and says the exact same words, but they've been through it, that person is qualified to comfort me in my suffering. I see this all the time, right off the top of my head. Cancer victims, or cancer survivors I should say, or those who have lost people to cancer, or those who have gone through cancer, Those people are better equipped to comfort those who are going through cancer than I am. Second one is people who have gone through abuse. Okay, and it it applies to everything, but those are the two that kind of off the top of my head. People who have gone through the abuse and have been through the pain and been through the the isolated feeling. Those people are uniquely qualified to comfort those who are going through those situations. And thirdly, comfort from those who have been comforted is life-giving to those who receive it comfort from those who are uniquely qualified those who have been through it okay said another way that when you're in the waiting room and you're there in the room and someone comes in who's been there that's life giving to you when you're still there and someone comes in who has been there that's life giving to you because that person's words again i know the verses But I'm talking words. That person's given life. Y'all agree with me on these three statements, right? If you don't agree with me, just stay tuned. In life experience, you'll, you'll live this. Unfortunately, we'll all live. This is the state of life that we all find ourselves in. But there's a fourth observation that I want to spend the rest of today talking about. And this one may come as a surprise to you. Maybe not something that you generally think of when it comes to this topic of comfort. And that is this. That comforting while it's life-giving to the recipient, is equally life-giving to the comforter as well. That comforting, while it's life-giving to the recipient, is equally comforting to the comforter as well. And if I only seen this once, twice, three, four times, I wouldn't say it, but because I've seen it so many, 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 many times, I can preach this as fact. That when you are in a situation, when you are in a dark place, in a lonely place, in an isolated place, in a scary place, in a place filled with all kinds of fear and all kinds of doubts and all kinds of the things that we said, I'll never be happy, nothing good will ever come from this. What's the point of trying? When you're in that place and then God comforts you and gets you through it, either through another person or through God himself comforts you and he gets you out of that situation, and then you're in a situation where you can be that comfort for somebody else, you become an equal beneficiary of the comfort that you end up giving. And the reason why is this, because in that moment, in that moment, your darkness, when you are sharing comfort, when you are comforting someone else, in that moment, your darkness, your loneliness, your fear, your whatever your waiting room is, your pain, all of a sudden, in that moment, that thing that you hate the most and that you wouldn't wish upon your worst enemy, but you found yourself in, in that moment, you see a little purpose to it. You see a little piece of, oh, now I get it. I doesn't explain everything. But all of a sudden, a little light shines in there. And the nothing good will ever come from this. Now all of a sudden, something good might come from this. And it'll nev- I'll never be happy. Now all of a sudden. And I'll go even deeper for you. In that moment, I'm going to break this down a little bit. In that moment, when you are the one doing the comforting, you know what you become in that moment? You know what you become? I should say know who you become. You become God. Because all comfort comes from God. You become the comforter of which is another term for those who know their Bible, is another term for the Holy Spirit himself is the comforter. You don't become the comforter out of your strength. You become the comforter out of the very weakness that you resisted your whole life. Now, that's our subject for today. And let me just kind of, everyone take a deep breath. That was some deep stuff that we just talked about. And some of you sitting there, I can see it in your eyes. You're like, I thought this was supposed to be like a happy Sunday, like a happy church. Like, why are we talking about all, Relax, okay? It is... Well, this is not as as, as difficult a as stuff as, as it may seem off the bat. And by the end of this, you're going to be telling me that it makes sense. Because what we're doing, for those, just kind of catch everyone up in case you're kind of joining us here for the first time, we are in the final week of a five-week series called In the Waiting Room. And if you missed any of the messages in the first five weeks, they kind of build on each other. Okay, you'll be okay for today. But if, if what I'm saying, like, strikes a chord, then go back. Go to our website, at thewellatstsa.com. And go check out the first five parts in the series, okay, to hopefully kind of make it all there a cohesive unit. What we're talking about is we're answering this question, as I said earlier, which is what do you do when there's nothing you can do? What do you do when you find yourself in a situation where there's no way forward and no way out? Where the thing that you resisted for so long has now become your reality, your new reality in life. And whether it's uh, a marriage that is just isn't going to get fixed, whether it's uh, a health issue or my job stinks or whatever it may be, you find yourself in a situation that your whole life you said, my life is going to go this way. And you found yourself not only here now, but here. And you've camped out right here. And it doesn't look like you're moving anytime soon. What do you do then? Well, our normal inclination when we find ourselves in the waiting room is very negative. By nature, we get negative. We say, like I said, I'll never be happy again, okay? that's the first. We, I'll never be happy again. This is the end of the world. I wish I could go back to the college days. I'll never be as happy as that again. Never be as happy as when we first got married. I'll never be happy anymore. Life can never be good again. Number two, we say that nothing good can ever come out of this. And don't tell me a Bible verse where all things work together. Like, don't tell me a story about John the Baptist, or these guys. Nothing good come out of my situation. And then thirdly, we get to the point where we say, you know what? There's no point in trying. I have prayed all these years. Nothing why I pray anymore. I obeyed God all these years. Why obey God anymore? I did things the honest way. Everyone else at work cheated. Why Why continue to be honest? And this is usually the situation that we reach. In our negativity, we think in our stupidity, as I really should say, in our stupidity, we think that God has somehow dropped the ball. That God has messed things up. That God didn't do his end of the deal like I did my end, and God dropped the ball And didn't follow through on what he was supposed to do. But we discovered in this series that actually that's not true. That as much as we think in our hearts that it should be God's job is to make me happy. As much as we think that. Just as children think it's the parents job to just give them whatever they want. What we discovered is actually believe it or not that's not God's job. His job description is not just to make us happy. He can be doing his job, and I can find myself in trials and tribulation, and the two are not a conflict with one another. Again, that's not natural to us. What's natural to us is, if I'm not happy, God's not doing a good job. If God's not cooperating with me, then he's not a good God. Or maybe he doesn't even exist. How do I know there even is a God? But we said that to believe that, okay, is to negate the years and years and years, the centuries of history that we have in Christianity. Like, we didn't just show up and invent Christianity yesterday, right? Christianity been around for several thousand years. And in those th- several thousand years, what we've seen is they're the group of, of Christianity as a whole. This idea of adversity and a good God have never been exclusive of one another. And yes, we may believe it that way now, but that's never been the concept in all our Christianity. Said another way, go to the people who gave us Christianity. Go to the people who gave us Christianity, and you will see that they did not live easy lives. They didn't lead wrinkle-free lives the way we want. Jesus certainly did not live a wrinkle-free life. His disciples didn't live wrinkle-free lives. His disciples' disciples didn't live wrinkle-free lives. His disciples' disciples' disciples and all the way down through the generation. Then it gets down to the year 2015 and we say, negate the first 2014, 2014 years of Christianity and I want this year that this is theology, that if God loves me, he gives me everything that I want. That ain't Christianity we saw that you can have God and can have adversity, and the two are not exclusive of one another. in fact, unfortunately, what we saw is not only are the two not exclusive, but the two almost are a coupling that are inseparably paired. You say, why has it got to be this way? And I wish I could answer that for you. If I could stand up here and give you an answer of why there has to be suffering in your life, why there has to be trials, I wish I could answer. I'd be a rich man if I could answer that, but I can't. But last week we saw... Again, this doesn't answer the question entirely, and I would be oversimplifying it if I was saying it did, but we saw maybe, just maybe, like God in his mind has a a, a million reasons. Maybe one of the reasons, maybe just one of the reasons why God is allowing the trial in your life is to make you a better person, or what we saw last week is to make you perfect. This is what we saw last week in James 1, 2, and 4. It says, my brethren. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why would I count it joy when I fall into trials? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience and let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Like a muscle that in order to grow must be stretched. Our faith, our relationship with God, which is eternal for this relationship with God to deepen and to grow stronger, it's gotta be stretched sometimes. And again, I would be oversimplifying it to say, yeah, God makes you miserable just to make you uh, more mature spiritually. I'm not saying it like that, but I'm saying maybe there's more here than meets the eye. And that's why we said last week, for those who were here, we talked about the most important thing. If, if we need the patience to endure this, then we need wisdom so that God can give us a different perspective and be able to see it from his perspective of things because this is not natural to us. Now, today we're going to wrap up this series. By talking about the role of comfort. And I'm going to answer specifically, hopefully by the end, something specific about what do you do when there's nothing you can do. We're going to look at an epistle of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians is an epistle or a letter. Let's say the word letter. It's easier. Written by St. Paul. We talked about St. Paul. And we kind of understood his, the context of St. Paul's writings. Now, not a guy sitting on a beach sipping on champagne okay, with someone feeding the grapes in his mouth. That St. Paul lived a tough life by every stretch imaginable. Like no one lived a tougher life than St. Paul. What he endured for the sake of spreading the gospel. Like he put in his mind, I want to take this message of Christianity beyond the boundaries of Judaism. Before this, like Jesus was Jewish and and the Christians were just Jewish. I want to take it to the ends of the earth. And he suffered significantly for whether he was imprisoned, whether he was beaten, whether he was shipwrecked, whether all his friends left him. They betrayed him like miserable, miserable kind of sufferings in life. And he speaks about some of those sufferings in 2 Corinthians. If you read that entire letter, no letter talks about how much he suffered more than that letter. Like he wrote many letters. That one in particular, he talks about the marks of his apostleship, so to speak. All the stuff he went through. And I'll give you just one verse right here. From 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. All right, so this is the beginning of the letter, verse 8. It says, We do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Y'all get what he's saying right here? This is St. Paul. Th- again, th- this isn't a baby. Okay, this isn't some, some little weak person. Okay, I was going to say something else. Okay, this isn't some weak little person. This is the toughest guy to walk. This is a man who exuded toughness. Like I said, they beat him one time. One time they took St. Paul outside the city. They said, get out of here. And he wouldn't get out. So They stoned him. And they thrown rocks at him to stone him. And they stopped stoning him. You know why? Because they thought he was dead. So they said, okay, no, don't waste any more rocks on the guy. A few hours later, St. Paul shook it off. And what did he do? He went back into the city and kept on preaching. Like it doesn't become a tougher person than St. Paul. But what he's saying here. So and there was a time where we were burdened beyond measure, above strength. And he said that he did what? What does St. Paul feel? He despaired of life. You all know what that means? Anyone who's ever despaired of life and had those thoughts, which you don't even want to admit those thoughts, that, that, you know, why even go on? Just, and someone tells you that's not Christian to believe that. Well, St. Paul believed that for a little bit. And St. Paul thought that. I shouldn't say believed it. He felt that. And St. Paul, the toughest guy ever, got to the point where he said, You know what? Man, I was even thinking about pulling the plug on this thing. Like, I can't take it anymore. That's our backdrop for what we're about to read. You got the backdrop? is that this suffering, and like I said, if you don't understand, go read 2 Corinthians when you get home. There's 13 chapters, not to take it that long, and you will see he talks about his suffering more than anyone else. That's the backdrop, and now we're going to go back to the beginning of the verse, a beginning of the chapter, beginning of the letter, and we're going to see how he starts it. We see here that starting in verse 8 and through the rest of it, he's going to talk about all kinds of suffering. Let's see how he starts it right here. He says, blessed be, this is verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. I beg your pardon? He's talking about God who is God of mercy and God of comfort. Meaning, He's the source of comfort, of all comfort. But, In two minutes, you're about to say how you wanted to kill yourself and how you had so much problems that you couldn't take life anymore. And just remember when we talked about the thorn in the flesh several weeks ago? Remember when St. Paul talked about the thorn in the flesh? That's the same letter. So in chapter 12, that's where he starts to talk about, I had this thorn in my flesh, which I received as from God. So the source of comfort gave me a thorn in my flesh mean, for those who weren't here, we talked about it. that thorn in the flesh was something humiliating, something painful, something debilitating and something permanent. And he says, God is God of comfort. Can I be honest? St. Paul, as if I'm talking to St. Paul, St. Paul, this is exactly why I don't believe that he's a God of comfort. This is exactly what I don't believe. This is the opposite of what I believe. Because I believe that if he was God of comfort, he would take away the thorn, that he would remove the despair, that he would solve the situation, and then I could say, look, God of comfort. But the very fact that he makes me be in a situation where I despair of life, that I have a thorn in my flesh that I cannot shake, it's very difficult for me to say he's God of comfort in that situation. How, if he was really all about comfort and mercy, does he leave me in this situation? Again, this is how we think. And I understand I'm not blaming anyone who thinks this way. I'm not blaming you. But again, I cannot reiterate enough that our history of Christianity, the people who taught us Christianity, if you believe in something called Christianity today, it was taught to you by someone else. You didn't didn't just come into your own mind. The people that taught it to us, those people never saw a discrepancy between trials and adversity and a good God who loves them dearly. If they did, we wouldn't have Christianity today because Christianity would have been squashed back in the first century if people said the only way we can believe in God is if all the bad stuff goes away. Then Christianity would not exist today. But the reason that it does exist and the reason why, I don't know, two-thirds of the world's population, wherever the statistic is, says that they're a Christian. What, well, the reason for that is Is because there was never a discrepancy that we could believe in a good God who loves us dearly and has a great plan for our life. And not everything works out the way we want it. That he's still God of comfort and God of mercy, even though he doesn't give me what I want. Okay, so what does he give me in my waiting room? Well, since he's God of all comfort, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation. There you go. Happy? Happy? Does that make you happy? There it is. God doesn't solve your problem, but he gives you comfort. How's that sound? Be honest. When you are miserable and suffering, raise your hand. How many people say, God, give me comfort through this? We don't pray that. What do we pray? God, get me out of this. (laughs) Not give me comfort. Give me a nice pillow so I can lay my head down. Get me the heck out of here. I don't need comfort. God, I need solutions. God, if I want comfort, I go eat some ice cream. Ice cream will give me comfort. I don't need comfort. I need a solution. I need to find a husband. I need to find a wife. I need to have kids. I need a new job. I need to get rid of these kids. I don't know, whatever it is that I need. I don't need comfort. I need miracle. And that's how we pray. But maybe, and this is the part that maybe God can do a little work inside our heads today. Maybe we don't understand What comfort means. In the passage I'm going to read to you right now. That we're going to read the rest of today. It's eight verses. The word comfort is used ten times. And maybe. St. Paul said. I have all this bad. But that's okay. He's God of comfort. Who gives me comfort. And St. Paul was okay with that transaction. That he doesn't take this away. But he comforts me in it. Maybe. Maybe. If we understood God's comfort. Maybe we'd be okay with it too. The word comfort in Greek is a word that you may have heard sounding before. It's the word paraklesis. Paraklesis, which sounds a lot like paraclete, okay? And the word paraclete is used to refer to the Holy Spirit. That's his name. He's called the paraclete, which literally means the comforter. Okay, we say the Holy Spirit in several of the church prayers. We talk about the comforter, all right, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. And St. Paul says that I don't have solutions, but I do get paraclesis from God, and that does it for me. What does comfort mean? You know who else believed in the power of comfort or paraclesis is Jesus. One time when he was preaching in in the Sermon on the Mount, the very first sermon that he gave, okay? First public one, I should say, at least when he was on the hill. He said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. One second here, time out. Let's take this one. Jesus said, blessed means good. Blessed means happy. Blessed means something that we all want are those who mourn because they shall be comforted. So what Jesus is saying, what St. Paul is saying, it's all the same theology, all put together, saying that having mourning plus comfort, is greater than no mourning at all. Again, having mourning, or having trials, or having difficulty, plus the comfort of God, that minus, plus that plus, is greater than having neither of the two. You agree or disagree? You agree or disagree? By our lives, we disagree. Because we say, God, keep your comfort and keep your problems. But Jesus said, the smart one, the one who wants to be blessed, will know that the mourning plus the comfort, like you have minus 2 plus 7,000. Minus 2 plus 7,000. That guy's better off in the end. We need to understand what the word comfort means. Comfort, like I said, Paraclesis, paraclete, Holy Spirit, means that when, when the Bible talks about God gives us comfort in all our tribulation, it doesn't mean like, like sympathy. It's not a human comfort. It's a divine comfort. It's not like a pat on the back like, hey, get him next time, tiger. It's not like a, uh, an e-card, okay, like uh, the sun will come out tomorrow, tomorrow. It's not a song. It's something divine. It's something divine. Life-giving. Remember, I said how comfort is life-giving. Well, life-giver is another word used, to, another title, I should say, for the Holy Spirit. He's the life-giver. He's also the comforter. So we can say that his comforting is life-giving. The word that I want to use to describe this this comforting, like the best expression in my mind, is galvanizing. Don't know what galvanizing means? Like galvanizing is when you take steel. Like, and that steel is like ready to rip through whatever it may be when it's been galvanized. You may have a sword that's kind of, and then you galvanize it. That's what God's comfort does. It upholds us. It makes us ready to face the world and ready to cut through whatever it may be that we're facing out there. What I want to say is God's comfort is a sacramental thing, which we don't see. But you know who sees it? I see it. I see it from the observer in that room with the people. I see it. I see that I come say, God loves you and God take care of you. And I could say all kinds of sermons and they just, like I said, want me to go away. And then I see someone come. And I see them look him straight in the eye. And give the comfort of God. That's galvanizing. That's upholding you. There's someone I know who has gone through very, it wasn't this situation, but difficult situations. Very, very difficult situations, okay? And the hardest situation, okay, the hardest situation is parent to child, in my opinion, okay? So I'm talking about a parent right now who, tragedy with their child, okay? This to me, this is the pinnacle. At least of all the suffering I've seen, this is the hardest one. I've seen someone like that. And I've seen that person go through. I, I've seen that person go through it. And I've been there. And then I see them pick themselves up. Now, I shouldn't say pick themselves up. I've seen God pick them up. And I've seen the way that God picked them up. And those, that lady can say stuff which I cannot say. That lady can say stuff which I cannot say. That lady can say in the midst of the most miserable, like the most painful thing that you can possibly imagine. That lady can say, that God will get you through. She can say that because she's experienced it. And that comfort which she gives to someone else, that is not a, that, that's not a human thing. That's not a human thing. That's a divine thing. That's a paraklesis kind of a thing. That's why this is a big deal. Back to our verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who comforts us I'm sorry, the Father of all mercies, God of all comforts, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to, and I'm going dot, dot, dot right here because this is a little bit of a cliffhanger. So now we saw that we're miserable, but God gives us comfort that we may be able to. Now, what's going to come next? What's going to come next? God gives me his comfort that I may be able to live another day, smile in the rain that I may be able to go to sleep happy tonight. That's what it's going to be, right? God comforts me so that now I have the ability that I didn't have five minutes ago to comfort those who are in any trouble. Excuse me. God comforts me so that I'm able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Remember how last week we talked about how we need wisdom, perspective, greater context? This is why. Because what God is saying right here, what St. Paul is saying, I should say, is you got to take a step back here, man. There's more to your waiting room than meets the eye. You look at it from this perspective and you say, why isn't God and how come? But from God's perspective... There's a lot more going on here. And again, forgive me for what I'm about to say. I realize I cannot say this to you. I can't say this to you one-on-one. I don't have the guts. But I can say this to a large group and then just ask for your apology after, ask for forgiveness after. Maybe, just maybe, just like maybe, 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 maybe. God gave you a trial. God gave you a trial so that he could comfort you in it because he's got a great purpose for you outside of that. And that is to be a comforter for others. You don't want to hear that when you're suffering. I get it. I totally get it. That's why I said I can get away with this now on stage because I ain't talking to anyone in particular. But maybe if you would just open your heart and see that maybe God gave it to me. Remember, we said this is a gift. Okay, we're taking our waiting room as a gift from God. Maybe God gave it to me as a gift because God sees things in a bigger perspective. And maybe God is looking for more comforters on this earth maybe that's why again maybe i'm starting to see a little bit of the purpose paul he got that we don't get that we struggle with that because we focus tend to focus on ourselves we want it just to be fixed for me saint paul he got it and he saw a bigger perspective and St. Paul said, you know what, this adversity, which like I said, if you don't believe me, go read the rest of that letter. When you go home, you will read about the worst, most miserable life, which of any one of the things that he talks about, he talks about probably 20 things. If any one of them happened to us, we'd have quit on life many, many, many times. He went through all this stuff, and he said, you know what, I'm not bitter towards God. I, 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 I'm not angry at God. I don't hold anything against God. Yeah, I, I, at a time, I was, I was praying that it would go away, but you know what God said? It's not going to go away, and you know what? I don't hold that against God. You know why? Because God gave me something through that. He gave me the ability to be able to comfort others. And you say, what's the big deal about that? I don't want that. And he says, that's because you don't understand that. Because if you did, if you did, you would realize that God's comfort doesn't just comfort the recipient. It comforts the comforter just as much. That another way let's make this nice and blunt as possible as blunt as possible god comforts us to comfort others say that with me god comforts us to comfort others one more time here you got to hear yourself saying it. god comforts us to comfort others i'm in a tough situation i don't know what to do god i need your comfort okay i will give you my comfort But I will give it to you so that you would comfort others. Why in this situation am I not getting God's comfort? Well, because maybe you've shut the door and you're not willing to share the comfort. And if you're not willing to share the comfort, you're probably not going to receive too much of it. Paul got that. And that's why you have a man, St. Paul who miracles were part of his life. St. Paul, not only was he the strongest guy, but St. Paul, miracles all around. St. Paul witnessed the risen Christ in front of his very eyes, like he had faith to pray for miracles. St. Paul, people who were sick, people who were possessed, he went to them, boom, healed them. They say that St. Paul, if you read in the book of Acts, it says that when he had, remember how I told you he had like some eye thing and he had like, like bandages all around and like the, the, the pus from his eye would leak out on these bandages and they would need to like clean his bandages. The bandages with the nasty, yeah, from St. Paul's nasty eye thing. Those bandages says that those did miracles. That they would have a demon-possessed person, they would take the bandage, and they would touch him with the bandages of the nasty junk from his eye, and that stuff did miracles. So if anyone who believed that God can do mighty works and can remove the adversity and move the pain out of his life, it was St. Paul. And St. Paul said, I ain't praying for that because I discovered something better than God removing the adversity, giving me his comfort so that I can comfort others. He goes on. Verse 5, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so also, I'm sorry, so our comfort also abounds through Christ. All right, this verse right here, what he does, think of it like an equation. I'm like an analytical person. I like equations. There's two sides of this equation. And he says this side equals this side. A equals B. On one side, we have the sufferings of Christ. On this side, on this side, we have the comfort of Christ. And what he's saying right here is very, very, very simple. As we share in the sufferings of Christ, we share in the comfort of Christ. What does that mean? It means that Christ suffered in the same way that we do. Correct? Yes, correct. Two verses from Scripture Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 2. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Secondly, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Christ suffered everything we suffered. Anything that you suffered, Christ suffered. You've been lonely, Christ was lonely. You've been scared, Christ has been a point. We don't say scared the way we scared, but we say that anxious and the way he looked at that cross. You've been in a situation, you've been betrayed, stabbed in the back, Christ betrayed and stabbed in the back. Anything you went through, He's been through. You've been in a dark, 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 lonely night. Man, he went through the darkest, 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 loneliest night. Sufferings of Christ, we share. And that's why, just so you know, that's why he, because he suffered this, he can comfort this. He suffered like us, went through everything that we went through, all for the purpose that when his children walk through it, he can comfort us. Me with those children in Brighton, I couldn't comfort because I hadn't walked that road. Anything that you're walking right now, he's walked that road. And if you believe that he's walked it and he's made it through, then St. Paul is saying the same way he walked it and made it through, he is able to aid those who are walking on that same path. Correlate that back to us, our principle from that. Our capacity to comfort is determined by the degree to which we've suffered. Our capacity. This is why Christ's capacity is infinite. Okay, That's why it's the biggest. Our capacity to comfort is determined by the degree to which we've suffered. <clears throat> Y'all with me so far? Now St. Paul's going to tie it all together. Because if you've agreed on everything I said, you're about to not be happy with what I'm about to say next. Because if you agreed, if you agreed, uh, it's not me, I'm just, you agreed. You agreed that our capacity to comfort is determined by the degree to which we suffer. So little suffering, little comfort. More suffering, more comfort. You agreed. And then we agreed that comforting is a divine act. It's not a human act. Is a divine act where I am God. I am the comforter to other people's lives. You agreed on those two. Watch what's going to happen to you next. Verse 6. Finish the passage. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Now, if did you understand what he is saying right here? Do you understand what he's saying? If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. St. Paul, who endured all those miserable things, beaten, jailed, like every miserable thing, says, You know what? I'm okay with it. You know why? For your sake. Because it allowed me to be a comforter for you. You can say those words with your waiting group. Amazing. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer, saying that we endure it so that we can give you comfort, which is good. So that way, when you endure it, you do the same thing. Or if we are comforted, it is also for your comfort and salvation. All I care about is your being a comforter for you. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the comfort. Some of us need to go home and recite, read this passage and recite it. Some of us need to recite it on a daily basis because what St. Paul is saying is very, very simple right here. What he's saying is when you're in that waiting room period of life and you don't know what to do and what do you do when there's nothing you can do and what do you do when there's nothing you can do? What do you do? What you do, very practical, and again, this does not explain everything because there may be other things that you need to be doing, but one thing that you do is you seek to comfort others. And you know what's going to happen when you seek to comfort others You will be the one who receives more than you give. Because what you will do is you will become a channel. Imagine a pipe from God to your neighbor. God pouring his comfort to your neighbor. I want to be the pipe. Because you know what happens to the pipe? It gets more than it gives. As much comfort as I give to you, as much comfort, I'll, I'll be honest, for me very personally, as much comfort, as much instruction, as much whatever as I give you when you're in your hard time, believe me, believe me, I receive more than I give. Because it's just logic. I cannot give more than I have. And what God does is when he sees us open to being a vessel for him, he pours his comfort through us and it purifies and it cleanses and it brings joy and it brings perspective and it brings everything. I become a channel for God's comfort. What does that look like, reality and practically? I I just came up with just a few examples off the top of my head right here, and I won't give any names, but there's a boy I know, okay, a boy I know, who as a child endured horrible things, horrible things. No child should go through what this child went through. No adult should go through what this child went through. Endured horrible things. Those horrible things, Brought this person to a place of a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, a lot of a lot of stuff. There's a lot of baggage that comes with that stuff that you don't realize. And this person sought help. And I give this person all the credit in the world for seeking help. But you know what I give more credit for? And this person then, someone else came to me and told me about this same struggle. And I reached, I don't know what possessed me, but I reached out to this person. And I said, hey, there's someone else who reached out to me who's going through the same thing that you went through. And you don't want to talk about it. Like it took you 10 years to even tell me. And we're close as as anything. It took you 10 years to tell me. Would you be willing to share with this person and help them? And that person struggled, but that person said yes. And I promise you, I saw that person, their healing process was going like this. After that moment, it was going like this. And I saw it go leaps and bounds because that person said, I'm willing not just to receive comfort, but I'm willing to give comfort. And that person received more than anyone else. Another example. There's another man, it's a married couple, but specifically it's the man who as a child suffered, his parents had a, um, a mental disorder, okay, a very bad one. I don't know what it's called, but very, very bad, where he suffered a lot, okay, because of his parents, like I want to say schizophrenia, but don't quote me on that one. Either way, you don't know who it is. So it doesn't matter. Let's say schizophrenia, okay, something very bad. And this person saw days, again, horrible. It'd be out on the street, like horrible, horrible days, This person made it, okay, and eventually got married and had kids, and the person had multiple kids. And then this person noticed that there is another member in his family who seems to be exhibiting the same characteristics as the parents. And he saw the same disorder, now history repeating itself, and he saw the toll it was taking on the children. Do you know what he did? He adopted those children, even though he didn't have the capacity to adopt them. And this was like, this was a big thing. Like, he already had his own children. He was already struggling with them. He adopted those children because he didn't want to see them go through what he went through. And he knew that he was uniquely qualified to see them through that time and help them get through it. Third example this one I can use names, public figure Rick Warren and his wife, Kay Warren. Okay, I spoke about this before when this happened. For those who don't know, Rick Warren is a uh, pastor out in California. He's very successful in his ministry. His youngest son took his own life. Okay, he suffered from a mental illness as well. And um, they didn't speak about it for years because it was something they were really struggling with. And then he eventually took his own life. And if you hear about how he did it, like, it was, it was, it was very difficult. Okay, very difficult is all I'll say. And there's a man of God right here. This is the preacher man. And this crushed him, as you can imagine. This crushed him but I give him all the credit in the whole wide world because you know what he did after that? After taking, you know, six months or whatever it was to kind of, kind of, you know, sort himself out, he came back to his church and he stood up in front of his whole church, in front of the whole wide world. He's got a big platform. and He said, we're going to remove the stigma from mental illness because he said it wasn't right that my son, who had this mental illness, he said some people are born and they have a problem in their elbow, no problem. Some people have a problem in their knee, no problem. He had a problem in his brain. Why should he be embarrassed of that? Why should there be a stigma? And he said, you know what? I'm going to make it the rest of my life's mission to remove the stigma from mental illness. And I gave him all the credit in the whole wide world because every time they think about mental illness, all they're doing is opening their own wound to their own pain. And he said, he stood up in front of the whole church and said, anyone who struggles with mental illness, you have a home right here. And if just so you know about us preachers who stand up here on stage, and we stand here in front of the churches, no preacher is going to say he wants people with mental illness in his church. He's are going to say, mental illness, go to the next guy's church. He stood up in front of the whole world and said, if you struggle with a mental illness, there is no stigma. You are welcome here in this church, and we will take care of you. We will remove that stigma. And I give him all the credit in the whole wide world. Three examples. And all I wanted you to learn are those three examples. And I'm not trying to make you feel like those three people, like you're miserable, you stink, and those three people are good. I'm not trying to say that. What I'm trying to say is there are real people out there, flesh and blood like me and you, who take this stuff seriously. And have opened their hearts, the pain in their hearts, the wound inside them, opened it, and been willing to let God use them to comfort others. And I promise you, those people have received more comfort than they've given started this series by asking this question. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? And I can't say that I've answered it and given you a detailed plan of everything that you should do. But I gave you some ideas. And I hope that you walk out of this series with a few ideas of what you should be doing. And again, this is not a comprehensive lift, but we saw that at the very beginning of this series, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to believe we are going to believe and we're going to trust and we're going to have faith and we are not going to doubt God's existence or God's goodness or God's love because we realize that, as I said every week, I said it three times today, I said it at least two times every every Sunday, is that a good God and adversity are not exclusive of one another. We believe that God has a plan and God has a purpose. God's going to see me through. And as we do that, we are going to do the opposite of what's natural to us. As it's natural to us to resist the adversity and to push it away. We will embrace it. And we will say, this is a gift from God. And your friends around you will say, you're a nutcase. How do you say this is a gift from God? This is a curse. We will say, you don't know what you're talking about. And we believe that when we embrace it as a gift, God will unleash his grace upon us in a way that is not comprehensible by most people. And through that, we will seek and pray to discover the mystery of being content. The Lord let me understand this mystery of you and me and me and you. And when I'm in you and you and me, I don't need anything. I've learned the mystery of the secret of being content, whether I have many things or have no things, this mystery that I can do all this through Christ who is in me, who gives me strength. And then I will be patient and I will endure. All right, I've, I've kind of confirmed myself, but I need to be patient because like we said, that faith plus patience is unstoppable. Because when God is working, if I trust in him, and I'm willing to be patient with him, inevitable the results will be good. Think about it, I always think about it like a, a, a trainer when you go to a gym. If I got a world-class trainer whose results are impeccable and he says do this, do this, do this, I need two things to be able to, to, to know I'm gonna have success. I need to trust what he's gonna say and to be patient and stick with it. If I stick with this world-class trainer for two years, I do everything he tells me for two years, the likelihood of me looking like I look like today is slim to none. I'm a look, I mean, you know what I mean, okay? I'm going to look like I'm in pretty good shape. If I've trusted him and been patient with him, I'm going to look like I'm in good shape. And in the meantime, I'm going to seek to be a blessing, seek to be a comfort to others. In the meantime, because I know that's the channel through which I myself will find the comfort. i to read these verses one last time and then pray together and send you off. And I want you to take these verses to heart, okay? And like I said, some of you may need to read them more when you go home. Blessed be the God and Father. You're thinking about your waiting room right now. You're thinking about your pain. And you're saying this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by by God. My prayer for you, as we conclude, is that this verse would be on the doorpost of your waiting room. And someone comes and says, oh, you, you must be miserable. And you're going to say no. Father of mercies, God of comfort, he comforts me. But I know he does it for a reason. And I'm believing, and I'm waiting, and I'm embracing, and I'm content, and I'm patient. And I know without a shadow of a doubt that in the end, what I received is going to always be greater than what I went through. Let's stand together and say a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God, amen. Lord, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, that, that you suffered on this earth. From the day you were born, Lord, your life on this earth, all kinds of trials and sufferings, and, and we thank you for that because we know that you understand what we're going through, and we know that you can relate to us, and we know that you can aid us and comfort us in our sufferings. So we pray, Lord, that you'd give us wisdom to like see things from your perspective, to have a greater perspective on things, to hold on to you and embrace you no matter what it is that we go through and to always seek to comfort others knowing that we ourselves will always receive more than we give. We thank you, Lord, for, for always being there for us in no matter what situation. And we pray, Lord, that you would see us through it and that we'd end up this waiting room period. And when we look back, we wouldn't trade we, w- we wouldn't ask for it again, Lord, but we wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, with the prayers of all your saints. Hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you all very much. Remember, next week we will not be having the well because we'll celebrate Epiphany, but I'll see you in two weeks for Friends and Family Day.